Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School right here in the heart of Chicago. I pray that you find hope and peace in the message of Christ and Him crucified for you in your life right now. Thank you for listening. And please, if you'd like to support the mission going on right here, uh, please go to our webpage, stjames-lutheran.org to donate. Thank you. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this past week was 4th of July, and uh, like any good dad, I read some history, because that's what dads do. They like to read about history and tell you about whatever world war that they're currently reading about. Uh, And I was reading about the 20th century, again, peak dad material, and what I was struck by as I was reading was this real sense that thanks to various kind of ideological and intellectual trends, right, changes in life philosophy, there were many in the 20th century that felt that we could kind of replace God, right, that absent God, we could create heaven on earth, and the word for this is utopia, right, that we could build utopia on earth. And what I was really struck by was the fact that it took Christian leaders uh, in different centuries or different decades Uh, to push back on this idea, right? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who will be doing a a summer study of his book, Life Together, was one of them. He said, confessing churches, Christian churches, could not participate in what the Nazi regime was doing. So he put the brakes on that, spoke out against uh, the Nazis in the uh, 20th century. Uh, People like Pope John Paul II, right, became a, a voice for freedom, advocating for Christianity, on a global stage and was really a a pivotal figure in helping to um, tap into that um, real desire for Christian worship and for God uh, that ultimately helped topple the Soviet Union. So interesting stuff, historically speaking. But one of the things that really stands out is the fact that when you had good leaders, really profound, awe-inspiring stuff occurred. And when you had bad leaders, disaster marked the 20th century. And so it is in the Bible, right? In the Bible, leadership really matters, and especially so in the book of Ezekiel. Now, we don't talk about Ezekiel all that much, so just to kind of recap, Ezekiel was a temple priest, and he was carried off into exile. This is the second, or rather, the the, the first wave of the uh, Babylonian captivity. We're talking probably 600 BC, somewhere around there. Um, And Ezekiel witnesses what would have been catastrophe for any God-fearing person, because foreign invasion meant change of everything, change of your lifestyle, change in your residence, change in your worship, right? Um, The idea was that uh, this was something earth-shattering for God's people. But what's interesting to me, at least, is that Ezekiel doesn't just blame the bad guys, right? He doesn't just blame the Babylonians. Instead, what Ezekiel says is Israel's leaders are complicit in this. Why does he say that? He says, as a result of all the folly, all the corruption, all of the bad leadership, Israel has actually played a part in their captivity. Listen to the stunning language Ezekiel uses to describe the problem. He says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding nothing but yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? 
You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. You don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And worse yet, with force and harshness, you have ruled these little ones that God has given you to care for. Do you see what Ezekiel is saying? He's saying there has been such a crisis of authority and bad leadership that Israel's leaders have contributed to the downfall of the nation. They look like the bad guys when it's laid out this way. So the only question is, how is God going to fix it? And that's why Ezekiel gives us this gospel, but it comes in this profoundly shocking way, right? Listen once again to what he says. He says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So Israel has that crisis of authority. Their leaders have been weighed and have been found wanting. What does God say? Because my chosen people have been neglected, I'm going to do it myself, right? What's the old adage? That if you want a job done right, you've got to do it yourself. And that's exactly what God is saying. He's going to step into the picture to make things right, to fix things, and to show mercy to his people. Now, God certainly had been shepherding his people, right? All along the way, God's been shepherding his people. But it was always through his messengers, right? Through a prophet, through a prediction uh, of things to come, through the word applied to God's people. God saying he's going to step into the picture is now a promise, right? God is going to have to come down and fix things and do so in a close way where he is in and among his nation, his people, and his sheep. And I think if you miss this point in Ezekiel, you're really missing the significance of what Jesus does then in the New Testament. Because Jesus presents himself not as another competing voice, one voice among the many. Jesus doesn't present himself as simply a teacher or another prophet in a long line of prophets. Instead, Jesus is presented as the voice of God speaking for itself. Now, this doesn't make much sense to us, but what's the most scandalous thing in the first century that Jesus does? It's not the miracles, right? It's not the healing. It's not the the distributing of the, the loaves and fish. That's not what causes such scandal. But especially when we think of Jesus' interactions with the religious elite, It's actually Jesus' forgiving of sins that causes such scandal. Why was this such a scandal? Because if you were not God, this is blasphemy. The idea was that only God could speak forgiveness and have it actually occur in an authoritative way. So now, with this idea in mind, listen to how Jesus then fulfills these words from Ezekiel concerning God's shepherding. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
God says, I myself am going to have to shepherd the sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He's the one now strengthening the weak, right? He's the one healing the sick. He's the one binding up the injured. All of these things underscoring the fact that God is shepherding his people in the work of Christ Jesus. That promise is now finally fulfilled. Here is the good shepherd. Now keep that thought in mind, right? Kind of put a pin in that and then see how this follows through in Hebrews. And Hebrews concludes with this beautiful prayer And that's what we read from in our epistle lesson. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what's Hebrews telling us? Ask yourself this question first. How far are your leaders willing to go for you? And that's a tricky question, right? Because we don't really know the answer to that question oftentimes. We don't know how far our leaders are willing to go for the people that they lead. I think one of the reasons why we were so struck by, culturally, the heroism of somebody like Vladimir Zelensky is that he said, I'm not going to leave when it would be easy to. I'm instead going to stay with my people. And even if you think this was just rhetoric, I think that language of not abandoning the sheep is something that resonates with us. But the whole reason why it resonates with us is because it doesn't happen every day. Most people cut and run, right? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffers don't come along every day to say, I'm going to stay here advocate for the oppressed, speak out against injustice, all in the name of the Christian gospel and in the name of the good news that has in fact transformed hearts and minds in this radical way. So why do I say leadership matters? Because the leadership of the good shepherd goes above and beyond what even someone like Ezekiel probably would have expected. Hebrews tells us it's actually by the blood of the covenant that this great shepherd has cared for the sheep. So think about it this way. This shepherd leaves no obstacle between himself and the sheep. He is willing to enter into suffering in all of its forms, to enter into death itself in order to bring life out of that darkness. So we think about the shepherd as going above and beyond, right? What we would expect of any other leader, why? so that we might be called to have life and have it abundantly. This is what the Good Shepherd does on our behalf. Goes to where the suffering is most profound in order to bring life and light and joy out of that, reconciling the sheep to their shepherd. Now what's interesting is that this action does not just stop with Jesus. It's not as if he simply says, I'm the Good Shepherd and he just leaves it alone. Instead, this shepherd actually commissions under shepherds to the good shepherd. In other words, he tells us, equipped with this message, to go out, to teach, to do mercy work, and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This shepherd, in turn, creates a kingdom of shepherds, which is what Israel was supposed to be. It's why Ezekiel is so disheartened. Because now, all the nation, meaning The church on earth is commissioned in leading, in shepherding, in caring for the world around us, 
as we point people to the center of life and grace, who is Christ Jesus. So that's the work of the church. We find ourselves in a long line of under-shepherds to the good shepherd. We find ourselves part of a kingdom of shepherds working to care for the sheep who are lost, stray, and confused. And what's the point of all of that? It's all about bringing people back to that love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. That's all of our work. You and me, the church here at St. James, the global church, this is the center of our mission. It's all about what we would say in in Latin, because it's always fun to use Latin, bringing people back to the unum necessarium thing, this, this one necessary thing. Who is that? It's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one necessary thing. God's people, Israel, had become distracted by the many things of life, right? If you read through the book of Ezekiel, which I encourage you to do, um, what you'll find is that in the temple, God's people had given up the pretense of even trying to appear faithful, right? There were statues of other gods in the temple. It was totally something that, at least to the the eye, appears as if if it's polytheistic um, because they had become distracted and enamored with the many competing voices. The church's job is to point people back to that one voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd, who speaks words of life, who cares for us, who forgives us, who shows us a grace that we could not possibly imagine in abiding with us all the way through death to resurrection life. That's what the Good Shepherd does for us. And it's with that in mind that I've often come back to the story of Mary and Martha, which is a really familiar story for many of us, but it's a really um, easy way to illustrate the way that we often harry ourselves, busy ourselves, become distracted. Um, Mary, of course, does what? She's quietly sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him as he teaches, and Martha is distracted with much serving. And I think we sometimes uh, think of this story as being a juxtaposition of sorts between the active life and the contemplative life, right? And that's the way we talk about it, is that, it, you know, it's good to contemplate God's words, etc. But I don't think that's really quite it. Um, instead, I think that even if Martha were to, were to sit down uh, and, and try to learn, I think she's become so harried and hassled by the many things of life that she wouldn't be able to sit calmly. Does anybody else have that problem where we are so worried about what's going on in our day in our week, where even when we have a quiet moment, we are still distracted. And that's why Jesus has to remind us that we need to reorient, or be reoriented, really, around that one necessary thing, which is his voice, speaking life, speaking peace, speaking forgiveness, which ultimately then allows us to not be harried by those many voices, but instead gathered around that one necessary thing, Christ Jesus. We're just like those people in the story. That's the point, right? We're stuck in our busyness. We're stuck in our competing responsibilities. We're stuck in our competing identities. We are anxious about many things. That's why we need a good shepherd. That's why we need God to step into the story and to fix things himself. And that's exactly what he does. Part of the reason why we have to study prophets like Ezekiel is because they remind us that those small gods that we distract ourselves with create in us small souls, right? We become enslaved to those things that we desire, those voices 
that we constantly devote our time and attention to. Therefore, what do we need? We need a good shepherd, of course, but we need the king of Israel, God himself, to abolish those crowns, to abolish those identities that we create for ourselves. We need a good shepherd to banish sin and death and to bring us life abundantly in its place. We need someone who's going to lead us in paths of righteousness because we so often go off that beaten path. And ultimately, our hard hearts need the love of God breathed into us by this good shepherd who has mediated our relationship with God by his blood leaving nothing between us, the sheep, and him, the shepherd. This is who our God is, and this is the promise that he fulfilled for Ezekiel, for you, and for me, as he comes to care for us, forgive us, and love us. That's what it means to be oriented to that one necessary thing. It means to simply allow grace to be grace, to receive it, to, uh, to, uh, to hold to it, and to gladly hear it and share it, with those around us. And what does that look like in practice, right? I think that's the thing that we struggle with. It's good to hear those words of forgiveness, but how do I show mercy in my community? How do I show mercy in my relationships with those around us? I always think of Jesus breaking things down in almost stunningly practical steps. What does it mean to be an under-shepherd? Here's what it means. Jesus in Matthew says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And that's really the work of the church. And we don't always live these out perfectly. You know, of course we don't, right? When we think about our own conscience and our own actions. And yet, I think if we thought about these things in our everyday relationships, It would transform the way that the church and the way that Christians live alongside one another. Can you feed the hungry? Absolutely you can. We do that through our mercy work at St. James and in the broader church, both in America and across the world. But importantly, can you feed people in practical ways? Absolutely. You can feed people with the bread of life, pointing to Christ Jesus as the good shepherd, as savior. You can bring people to church where we hope to always welcome the stranger in our midst, right? To feed them with the word, of course, but also with the bread of life, which is Christ's body and blood given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. Can we care for the friends and family whom God has maybe already placed in front of us? Absolutely. As we have been richly forgiven, so also we forgive, thereby bringing people into relationship with that great shepherd. That's kind of the point. I I also came across this quote Um, by Dorothy Day, and I thought it spoke to this sort of idea. Um, She talked about the everyday ways that the church works to be an under-shepherd to the good shepherd, and she says that she spoke out because I believe Jesus gave us a way to live in peace, that ultimately this is about creating peace both between us and God and between one another. He asked us to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, visit the imprisoned, bury the dead, shelter the homeless, visit the sick. I don't know about you, but that sounds exactly like what the church does and what the church's mission is. The task of shepherding then is profoundly simple. Feed the hungry so that they might know the bread of life. Give drink to the thirsty that they might know where living water comes from. Visit the sick so they might be cared for by the great physician of body and soul 
who has bound us up, cared for us, forgiven us, reconciled us to God, our Heavenly Father. In fulfilling our vocation, our everyday task as Christians, that's how we respond in praise and thanksgiving for the great gift of forgiveness, grace, love, and life itself that is dependent upon and stems from that good shepherd who has stepped into our story to forgive, renew, and strengthen us while we were yet undeserving. Amen. And now may the peace that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.